welcome to Solving for B, your podcast for all things branding and marketing. In this episode, the Brand Extract team discusses what it takes to build an innovative brand. They're joined by special guest Tom McDonald, author of the book, Paving the Way, Innovation, Talent, and the Path Forward. Tom has over 30 years of experience across the industry, working in areas such as business development, operations, business startups, and even market development. So sit back and enjoy this edition of Solving for B with Brand Extract. Hi, and welcome into Solving for B. I'm your host, Chris Wilkes, and we've got a really great episode on tap for you today. Today, we're discussing emerging trends and innovation that brands need to be prepared for in the coming year and beyond. And to help me unpack this topic, I'm joined by author and business development consultant at Sherlock Resources, Tom McDonald. Glad to be here. And chairman of Brand Extract, Jonathan Fisher. Hey, Chris. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you guys taking the time today. Um, so before we jump in, uh, I want to kind of introduce our, our audience to Tom. Uh, Tom, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Okay, sure. Um, I've, I've got a, uh, a varied background over the years. I've done different things. I've worked for large multinational organizations. I've also done startups. I've worked for small companies as well. So I've worked for a fairly broad range of, of companies, including some of my own. Um, I, um, currently, uh, for the past three years, have been working with Sue Orr at Sherlock Resources as a business development consultant, leading our thought leadership programs and doing our branding and, um, marketing business development. Uh, Sherlock Resources is a small, uh, boutique, uh, recruiting and talent management firm focused on engineering and scientific disciplines. Um, so working with oil and gas, chemicals, petrochemicals, supply chain, manufacturing, those, those type of industrial firms mostly. Um, <clears throat> Sue's been working in that field for almost 30 years, recruiting engineers and scientists, started her career as a scientist, uh, as a chemist, um, but started Sherlock Resources in 2013 as her own firm and founder. Um, <clears throat> like I said, I joined her three years ago and started up our thought leadership program as a part of our branding. And so we don't consider ourselves a typical staffing firm. We, we like to uh, be strategic partners with our clients and work with them over time and help them grow, understand their business and help them with, uh, find and recruit the talent that they need to move their companies forward. And so the thought leadership is really part of our brand in that we, we, we look at ourselves more as management consultants, and we are at the forefront of the technologies, the ideas, the events, the organizations, and the things happening in the, in the arenas that we work in. And so thought leadership is really um, important to us in terms of the market value that we bring in our value proposition. So, um, and, and over the years, um, you know, my background is laid out fairly well on my LinkedIn profile, but I've spent many years in corporate finance, um, in business development and sales. Um, also, like I said, doing startup work and also other consulting type projects. Um, so I've got a broad background and, and that's what I'm currently doing. Um, and I'm happy to be here today to share a little bit about some of the work that I've done over the past year or so in writing and speaking and, and those sorts of things in, in, our, in our arena. 
Yeah, well, we're, we're excited to have you. So thank, thanks for joining us. So, so I do want to dive in. Um, and the first place I want to start is by asking you guys, uh, you know, what are some of the emerging trends that you think will have the greatest impact on businesses in 2022 and beyond? I'll take that to start with. Um, I think there, there are a lot of things going on. As we all know, there's a great deal of uncertainty. Um, the, um, the marketplace, depending on what industry you're in, is, um, you know, there, there are a lot of open-ended questions, a lot of um, question marks on, on where things are headed. Uh, some industries are more, more chaotic or more uncertain than others. What I see in the work that I do is uh, a very strong push towards automation and towards digital transformation. And I've uh, done some research in that area, talked to some business owners and other technology professionals um, and uh, have done some work in those arenas. Uh, so the impact of machine learning, AI, blockchain is a particular area that I focus on in my book, um, smart contracts as the application for, for blockchain. And um, the, the trend towards people and machines learning how to work together. And so the, the old fear that robots were going to totally replace humans, more and more experts now are thinking that what's really happening is that people and robots are learning how to work together and become synergistic and more productive that way. So yes, there will be some displacement of workers uh, due to automation, but more so, there's an opportunity to learn how to automate and streamline and reframe processes and business processes and customer delivery systems uh, to incorporate automation in a way that enhances the value delivery. It doesn't totally replace people. It just changes what they do and how they work and what the core skills are needed um, going forward. That's, that's my first answer to that. I'll, I'll let Jonathan jump in here. So I, I think uh, Tom has an amazing background and one of the things that he's being humble about is his ability and his uh, history of seeing many, many different types of companies um, and seeing what their needs are for human capital and technology as it relates to both. So I just wanna give him a little shout out because he was kind of humble in his presentation of his background. But uh, like us, you know, we also have a, an insight into two, 300 companies that we've worked with over the years, helping them with their branding process. And, and I completely agree that, you know, the pandemic has shifted people's mindset around technology and what can be done remotely. And now we have these sort of hybrid environments that we're having to figure out how to work within and to manage within. So all those systems and processes, I mean, it continues to be a topic with everybody that we talk about. And from our perspective regarding branding, Chris, you know, in general, not just technology and automation and blockchain and all those components and IoT, because we do see that impacting uh, the companies that we're working on, on items like ESG reporting, for example. Um, you know, and we ourselves have already introduced some technology to make ESG reporting simpler and easier and faster for publishing and smarter for the bots and the analysts and the investors that are out there doing it. So a lot of the companies that we're seeing are addressing this concept of energy transition, you know, our transformation in the marketplace. And so on the topic of ES and G, you know, it's both environmental or economic, depending upon your perspective that and then social which is all the human capital components and the corporate philanthropy and the community impact components and the g being the governance components which is the policies and to tom's point about 
uh, contract management using AI, you know, that's part of a governance, a governance, you know, impact in that trend in that place. So we do see companies kind of impacting all three of those categories and then having to manage and report on those categories because now, you know, this ESG reporting component is basically business risk management at the end of the day. It's a prism by which you can manage your business and evaluate your operations um, through that category. So that's one big category that we see, you know, changing in the marketplace for these companies and using technology to support it, whether it's on the publishing side or on the monitoring and the management side of it. I was just contacted by a researcher out of uh, one of the major universities on the East Coast asking me about, about my opinion on, on IoT and its impact uh, on ESG and the environment. And I was like, other than the obvious, what are you really looking for? Because <laughs> yeah, what gets measured gets managed. <laughs> and that's where the technology is impacting all of this conversation around smart devices and things like that. But I do think people's perceptions of need are changing as they reevaluate where they are in their workplace, where they are in their life as a result of the pandemic. I think uh, they're also having to evaluate where they are in their stability financially. A lot of people have lost jobs. Others have been huge winners out of this, you know, this economic environment um, where they want to live, the whole remote workers. Uh, and I hear stories all the time. People are working two and three jobs now remotely because they can and although their employees don't necessarily know it. <laughs> it's not just their side hustles anymore. But I think there's been this huge sort of, you know, social adjustment in people's mindsets and what they buy and how they buy. Uh, I heard an article the other day uh, from Rolls-Royce was saying how the pandemic was really good for them because people just took a perspective that life was too short and went ahead and purchased their car of their dreams. <laughs> and I thought that was an interesting point of view, right? Everybody's suddenly checking off their bucket list. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people have always purchased on two motivating factors, need or want, you know, desire or, or you know, must have or really want to have it. And I think that one of the things companies have to be super sensitive about right now is which side of the coin they fall on regarding that perspective and how do they position their product and their service offerings so that it addresses, you know, what people need or want in these changing environments and for the future. And so I think stepping back and really evaluating where they're at. We see a ton of companies thinking about their positioning in the marketplace and wanting to reposition in the marketplace and how they're going to reposition the marketplace. So I think that's another big trend that we see just continuing to accelerate along with the other ones that we've already talked about. Yeah, you talk about, I mean, you, it, as you guys have laid out, it feels like there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty right now and there's a lot, there is, to your point, Tom, there's a ton of change happening. What advice would you have for a, a business or a brand that, um, you know, doesn't know what to make of it, or, you know, like is, is kind of overwhelmed by all of the, the, the fluctuating, you know, norms or, or, you know, resetting of norms in this environment? Well, um, I mean, that's a very big question. Um, I mean, I, the, the place to start is with your current customers and, and delivering value to the customers that you promised, but you have to look forward from that too and, and see where things are headed, uh, not only with those customers, but also in terms of gaining new customers. Uh, Jonathan mentioned a couple of interesting points that, that do tie back to talent management and some of the things that I've written about uh, when he mentioned the energy transition, um, as well as um, the need to, uh, to navigate the change due to you know, other environmental factors. And so one of the key, uh, one of the top concerns of CEOs, according to multiple 
um, surveys is the need to reskill the workforce. And I wrote ext more extensively about that in the article that I wrote for the uh, journal of the Society of Petroleum Engineers called The Way Ahead. It's an online journal uh, which just came out in December. Um, and I got into some things that I didn't write about in my book, but the, the need to reskill is top of mind for many, many CEOs in, in many industries. And so when you talk about, uh, particularly here in Houston with the energy industry, um, energy transition, um, you know, looking at how to upskill and reskill uh, the, the very proficient workforce that we have here in the technical and scientific community um, and, and reorienting talent towards the new technologies and the new approach to uh, generating energy, those sorts of things. So skill management, upskilling, reskilling. Uh, there, there's multiple surveys, one by Deloitte that says over the next three years, between half and all of the workforce needs to be reskilled. Um, that's, that's a pretty wide window, but the point is pretty, um, you know, pretty bold. Um, there's a massive need to reskill, and a lot of it has to do with the things that Jonathan's talking about, um, not just in energy transition, but um, other broad social trends towards, um, you know, taking care of the climate um, and, and other other trends as well. But reskilling the workforce is going to be uh, very high on the minds of um, many CEOs. Yeah, I think re I think you know if I can add to what what Tom is saying, it's it's you know it's it's reframing sometimes what is the problem, um, what do we want to accomplish? You know, taking a hard look at it, taking a more holistic look at it. You know, uh, looking at the data you do have and how that's shifted and adjusted over the last two years. Um, you know, working on some predictive analysis models uh, to see where things are going. Um, I, I think the really insightful thing, and we've been doing this for a number of years uh, with some professors out of Rice University, is understanding where value comes from within your value chain itself and how that's weighted. Um, more often than not, companies you know, have a litany of things that they think are valuable to the customer, but at the end of the day, it's usually an 80-20 rule, you know, that there's only about 20% of what you do that drives 80% of the value for why they purchased or used you or reselected you or recommended you, whatever it might be. And I think that companies that don't have a really good perspective on that uh, are going to struggle. And so uh, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed in Tom's book was he talked about reframing a lot. And uh, it's, you know, and problem framing is something that we've always done too, you know, with helping companies think about their positioning in the marketplace and how to capture new share, you know, market share, new customers or reduce attrition, whatever it might be. And so understanding where waste occurs in the delivery of the service and in the feature functionalities of the product um, is really critical now because they can't afford to give up any ground and they can't afford to waste any money and they can't afford to hire more than they need to hire. So, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the way. So we talked a little bit about the technology, uh, the technology, and there's this the, kind of the ESG stuff, Jonathan, that you mentioned, kind of the social impact that we kind of see impacting businesses um, in 2022. I want to talk about kind of how how we expect those to um, impact business models. Like, you know, in what ways will business models evolve or need to evolve? To manage to 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 match some of these these trends that you're pointing out um, as you know upon us. 
Is that for me or Jonathan? E either way, jump in, Tom. Okay. <clears throat> well, um, the example that I provide in my book on business model, I, well, there's several examples, but the main example that I provide in my book on business models comes from the massive change that's occurring in large scale industrial construction. So think multi-billion dollar capital projects. And there's an enormous amount of research and practice going on in that industry to reframe um, the way that the problems are looked at and <clears throat> essentially reconstitute a new business model, which they've termed OS2. There's a long story behind where that name came from. And uh, I worked with many of those people driving that movement in terms of writing my book. I wanted to provide a little case example in my book. Um, but the, the, um, the, the business model shift that's highlighted there, there's a couple of them actually. One, one is called the neighborhood concept where it's again, reframing uh, the view of the overall business ecosystem to include upstream and downstream players in the, in the overall process of uh, say building a, a bridge or a, a skyscraper or some multi-billion dollar project uh, where the, the rule in that industry is for every million dollars in revenue, you have a company involved. So you know, your typical billion dollar construction project is gonna have over a thousand companies involved in the supply chain of pulling that together, enormously unwieldy potentially. Um, and dealing with that with management science techniques that were developed largely in the 1950s is just not working like, like it should be. And so this OS2 movement is a, is a reframing of how to approach that. The neighborhood concept is sort of zooming out and looking at the ecosystem and all of the players and, um, and, and treating the other partners in the system like your neighbor, and meaning, uh, well, here's, a, here's an example to make this very concrete. Uh, the research in the OS2 has highlighted and demonstrated that <clears throat> late payments cost more for everybody in the value chain. So when when a, a subcontractor withholds payment or, or doesn't pay on time, that, that backs up all of the payments in the supply chain um, and or they, the, the, um, the contractor ends up borrowing money at a fairly high interest rate to pay salaries and wages and rent and so on. Um, and then those higher capital costs get factored in and then that gets factored in at each layer of the value chain. So think about a thousand companies in this value chain and they're all hedging because of late payments. Well, you know, the typical controllership principle of, um, you know, pay your bills as late as you can, but collect your bills as fast as you can. It doesn't really work in, in complex, large supply chain where all companies are better off if everybody pays on time because that reduces costs for everybody. And so that example is in my book and it's just reframing a very simple concept like um, working capital management, reframing it and looking at it from a broader perspective of how it impacts each player in the, in the complex supply chain. And you know, how can you make that more efficient and reduce the cost for everybody? So that's a concrete example of the neighborhood concept. And there's a lot more um, in there on that. And the, the references to the research materials uh, are in there as well. And one of the main uh, researchers on that is at the University of Texas at Austin, and I've gotten to know him fairly well. Um, so that's one example of a, of a change in a business model 
looking at things through a, a, a different frame and trying to get to higher capital efficiency, higher talent usage, better outcomes, lower yeah. cost. One of the things that you you mentioned um, whenever we we kind of met previously to, to prep for the episode was um, that there's kind of like this decentralization um, also happening um, where where um, decisions are being kind of pushed further like closer to the field. Um, and I mean, can you talk about that and like what's what's enabled that? Yeah, that that was an example that um, that came along with the, um, the the material that I provided on smart contracts based on blockchain technology. So smart contracts, at least the ones in in my world in the OS2 movement, have nothing to do with cryptocurrency whatsoever. So people in the popular press, there's so much out there on cryptocurrency that some people think blockchain and cryptocurrency is the same thing. Cryptocurrency is one application of blockchain. There are other applications that don't include cryptocurrency. And so the blockchain that's involved in OS2 is more about um, distributed ledger, um, a, a single source of truth. Uh, and what it does is it, it builds and um, enables trust among players. And uh, so it facilitates a lot of behavioral things along the, the technology, the capability of the technology it, enables better behavior in the business system. And so, you know, this example is laid out better in my book. So I would, um, I guess I'm plugging my book here, but um, it's okay. so <clears throat> one of the, one of the byproducts of uh, that single source of truth that everybody can see real time, immediate um, posting of transactions, you could have instantaneous or daily payments, not monthly payments those sorts of things that are that are possible given the technology it also pushes decision making out to those that are closest to the action closest to the project closest to the customer and so decentralized organizations um, are enabled through these changes in technology and so that's another that's another um, another opportunity for 2022 and beyond is not just the, the skills of collaboration within, you know, collaborating across the boundaries of companies, but the leadership that's needed to understand how do you coordinate and drive, um, how do you drive an organization to its objectives in a, in a somewhat distributed environment where, you know, the people are truly enabled by the technology to make decisions and make things happen in a less bureaucratic way. Um, so I know that's that's a lot of words. Um, like I said, it's a little more detail in my book, um, but that's an example of how a, a technology trend coupled with a behavioral trend, uh, I think will lead to much greater efficiency. We're definitely seeing that in construction and some other areas as well. Yeah, and you, I mean, that that speaks to the need for reskilling, right? For for the the workforce to understand these technologies and how to best leverage them. I yeah, reskilling re not only of the of the workers themselves, but also a different a different um, model of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hey, I'm curious, Jonathan. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to just jump on a few conversations here because I've, I've loved the topic. So, you know, my, you know what do they say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. You talk about what are the trends. Um, 
and when you say the word decentralization, I, I just look back at all the supply chain logistics that have just been so disrupted from this process. You know, um, you talk about late payments, well, late product, right? You know, I ordered a car, it's still not here yet. I, I ordered it in September, you know? Um, so that crushes your cash flow if you're a business. Um, so one of the trends that we've seen is companies are, are really having to rethink their supply chain and their logistics processes and how they manage and control the production and fabrication or the delivery of those services as such because of those delays and that factor. So to Tom's point, something as simple as a late payment, it chokes everything down. You know, uh, we've seen this with manufacturers that, you know, can't get material on the shop floor. If they can't material on the shop floor, then they can't, they can't engage the labor. If they can't engage the labor, they can't hire when a particular model, they can't hire in a particular model, you know, and then they can't deliver on time, can't deliver on time, the customer goes elsewhere, right? So these vicious cycles are created through these, these processes that are out there. So companies are having to step back and say, what can I deliver on time with the equipment? I was talking with, I'll give you a small example. We were talking with a, a vet service recently and the vet service is wanting to expand, but they, they, they have these complex mobile delivery offices, if you will, they're just vets on wheels. And they go to your house or your business, your location, whatever it might be. And, and these are very expensive vehicles. They take time to outfit. And so my first question back to your CEO is, well, what percentage of service can you deliver without this vehicle? <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, we need to think about that, right? Because I can't get the vehicle. So do I really need to hold up my services or can I trim my services in some manner or fashion for that process? Or can I outsource a percentage of those services to somebody else and co-op and co-partner with those things, you know? So, you know, talking with a trailer company the other day and they couldn't get screens for their windows. And so they're completely not delivering the campers. And I'm like, well, why can't you deliver the camper without the screen, adjust customer expectation, and then work with a screen manufacturer independently to go and install the screens after the fact? It might not be an ideal environment, but if the buyer is so hungry for the camper, are they willing to adjust their behavior in that conversation? They're like, we don't know. We haven't really thought about it that way, you know? And so, so this idea of just sort of reframing the problem and go, you know, kind of goes back to that necessity is the, is the mother of invention. I think it's very disruptive and also just identifying additional revenue streams. You know, if you're a manufacturer and you, you break down the products you manufacture and the technologies you use to products as manufacturers, and you look at that entire ecosystem, you know, we're, you know, is there something within your capability that you can do to create other things or use your product or a component of your product in somebody else's products and become more of an OEM, you know, mindset as opposed to a finished product manufacturer mindset and delivering. And so I think companies that can step back and say, you know, we, we saw good examples of this during the start of the pandemic, people that were used to making one thing suddenly pivoted and made face masks and shields and, and other things. Well, why did it take the pandemic for them to think about that? You know, because they, they had skill and they had labor, but they'd only envisioned using it one way in that process. And so I think companies have found completely new revenue streams by stepping back and deconstructing their businesses and their business models to figure out how, what else they can do with their brands in this process. And we see this all the time, you know, just working with brands that, you know, take a, a tire, you know, recycler, you know, what are all the things you can do with these recycled products these days? And, and who can you sell them to and who can use them in what ways and what applications. And so helping companies evaluate 
how their, their materials get used is a big part of what we do from a branding perspective is, is saying, you know, I was working with a, a device manufacturer for doctors and they, and when we asked the doctors how they use the device, we came back with dozens of applications the company had never thought of to market against in that process. And so I can't emphasize this concept that, that, that Tom has in his book enough of, of just reimagining, rethinking, deconstructing, and looking at the technologies and the course sets that you have. And then how do you adjust for the future with this reskilling of opportunity and service and product delivery? So, so will that, I'm curious, do we think that the, the, the reframing and reskilling, like, is this a one-time shot? Do we do this and okay, now we're set up for the next however long, or is this just a, a, a process we're going to have to continue to, brands are going to have to continue to undertake? I think it's, it's constant. I, I think the companies that reinvent themselves on a regular basis are the ones that are going to lead the market. And I think they're the ones that are going to continue to capture the imagination and the investors and the value pricing and just the shareholder value as well. I think those are the companies that are going to do really well because I think we're going to live in an ever increasingly changing world that becomes more extreme with everything from weather to consumption and consumer predictions and to technology and innovation. And it's like Moore's law with, you know, with processing is always doubling. And, and so I, you know, and I think Tom does too, probably is that this is, this is something that you need to, to, to change culturally within your organization. And I think that's a, a, a topic that, that Tom mentioned very briefly. It's this notion of just reshaping your leadership mindset and how that whole process works through the culture of the organization. I would, I would echo that. I, everything that I'm seeing, um, all the research is showing that the half-life of technologies is shortening. And it's not just technology, it's, it's business models, it's the, the macro environment. Um, I completely agree with what Jonathan's saying. To the point where not only is reskilling constantly going to be important, but what will be uh, the foundation of that will be developing the capability to learn faster and more efficiently. And so <clears throat> once you build that ability within a company, as well as individually, and I talk about this a little bit in the, uh, in the article that I wrote, that it has implications both for companies in terms of their investment decisions on reskilling and upskilling, but also implications for individuals in terms of understanding how skill paths lead to real opportunities in the marketplace uh, from the standpoint of managing one's career. And, um, you know, so, so learning how to learn and learning how to be a lifelong learner and to be open to new paradigms and to not be excessively risk averse and to, I, I don't want to say go with the flow, but uh, sort of, um, you know, just be open to new ways of doing things, new ideas. Um, don't be so risk averse. Now, the, the flip side is people who who don't become lifelong learners, who who are excessively risk averse and and uh, want to stay in that old world, so to speak, they'll continually be challenged. Um, and so, you know, the, the implications here are not only for companies in terms of investing and developing the workforce, but also individuals from a career management standpoint. Sure. Think about, so, think about AR and VR, you know, and how that's just, you know, we've been talking about AR and VR with our customers for years and years now, but it's, it's, it's rapidly evolving. You know, the, 
look at the hottest toy products at Christmas time with a, you know, with the Oculus headsets. And, but I was having a conversation with a real estate agent the other day and just talking with them about how their world has changed in the whole real estate market, how it's been turned upside down. Um, and a lot of the models that were out there, you had the extreme where Zillow was overestimating the markets because they had flawed, you know, AI technologies in the process and they were overpaying for the markets. But they had realtors who would, you know, in their wildest, you know, imagination, selling houses 30, 40 years could never imagine selling a house without ever a buyer stepping into it. And they were doing virtual showings, you know, and, and, and same thing. I saw this with the, the trailer guys, uh, uh, the camper company I, I was talking about earlier. Um, you know, they weren't taking people into the showroom. So they were doing these, you know, personal walkthroughs on their iPhones, you know, to show the camper and talk about it. And so one, it created a way more efficient. They could do way more walkthroughs. They could record the walkthroughs. They came better trained at watching their own recordings of their walkthroughs and they were demoing and selling in the process. And they created an asset library that became searchable and you know online. And so this one thing triggered like half a dozen values that they'd never imagined in this entire process of just the basics of recording and demoing virtually in this process. They didn't have the travel time for the customers, you know, so weather was weather was no longer a factor for them, you know, because on cold days or wet days, they had generally saw lower traffic to their their yards and lots. Um, and so all that all that completely got reimagined in this process with this one basic function of whether you're you know demoing things virtually through this process and using technologies and, and real-time streaming and recording and then analyzing that and evaluating it. And so I think the pandemic in many ways, from a business standpoint, has been a blessing in a sense that it's opened people's eyes to what was possible. In many ways, it's been a curse. We're not here to talk about those. We're here to talk about innovation um, and how it's really changed people's perspective of their business models and to what's possible in the marketplace. And to me, that's very exciting, you know, to have those types of conversations. And as a management consultant, you know, for Tom, I know that his, you know, that's the thing that gets him out of bed, you know, <laughs> is to talk about these opportunities. Yeah. No, that, that that's great. I mean, it's, it sounds to me like, like adaptation and, and agility um, is kind of more critical to brands than it ever has been. Um, and, and it sounds like we're kind of all in agreement then um, that it's going to be critical for, for brands even more going forward. I mean, it, with the rapid pace, the rapid change in technology, um, all these, these kind of new worlds opening up to us, um, shifting realities. I mean, it's exciting times. Um, so I, I, this was, this was great, um, a great conversation, guys. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. I do want to, before we jump off, I do want to give Tom a little bit of the floor to tell us a little bit about your book. Um, the book's called Paving the Way, Innovation, Talent, and the Path Forward. Uh, tell us, tell us what, you know, who it's for and, and where we can okay. find it and uh, a little bit about it. Well, first of all, this is what it looks like. It's, it's not a thick book. It's about 80 pages. And that actually includes a few cartoons. And um, I didn't write it to be a long read. It's not a how-to. It's not a deep dive. It's just a thought provoker. Like I said, 80 pages. Um, there are some leading edge ideas in there. And when I, when I decided to write a book, I decided that I didn't want to just sit in my office and do research and write about things that other people had written about. I wanted to write a book that came from my conversations with people 
out in the field doing things that were innovative. And so that's what I did. I, there, there are maybe seven or eight people in that book that I've quoted and um, I worked with them very closely. In total, there were well over a hundred people that I actually met and had Zoom calls with and discussed and got to know. So there are many more people behind this than the ones that I met, mentioned in the book. So it took over a year, but it was more of a process. Um, it wasn't just me sitting and writing. It was more me meeting a lot of people, having conversations. Um, the examples are coming from real, you know, real innovation in the marketplace, in mar various marketplaces. And um, that, that's what I wanted it to be. It was just a thought provoker with some key ideas uh, to help people think about some key concepts and provide some key examples of that. Um, and that, that's what it is. It's just a short book. Um, and again, it ties back to the thought leadership theme that we have here at Sherlock Resources uh, in that we, um, you know, we, we're advocates of leading edge thinking and practices and uh, approaches to the marketplace. Innovation is, is key in our arena. And uh, that, that's why I did it. It was, it was more fun than work. Um, it took longer than I thought it would. Um, but again, I, it, it came from my conversations. And so that, that's why it took so long. Um, if I were to write a book again, I don't know that I'd take that same approach because it, there was, I just, it just took so long, but it was, I enjoyed it. It's out on Amazon. Um, there's a, a paperback version. There's also an e-version. Uh, you can find it on Amazon under my name and the title, Paving awesome. the Way. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you're so inclined, uh, pick up a copy and enjoy. Yeah, and we'll and we'll make sure definitely to provide a link to that uh, for anybody who's interested. You know, on our website in the show notes, um, so easy access to that book if uh, if you're interested out there. I I would say that one super fast read, and I appreciate that because I get shoved a lot of books, and some of them are not so easy to read. <laughs> but two, there's always you know any book you can pick up three or four you know solid concepts out of, in my opinion, is is worth your time with. And uh, I don't think anybody's uh, going to walk away feeling like they didn't get their their value out of out of Tom's book because there's a lot of great ideas in there and and a few that will probably refresh your memory you've forgotten. But uh, you know, an in, in easy read and a solid uh, you know a solid product. And I'm not just plugging the book for Tom's sake because I don't do that. Anybody that knows me, <laughs> but I do fundamentally believe that that the ideas that are in the book are really going to help any company think about how it moves forward in, in business. Awesome. Thank you. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Always pleasure. Yeah. That's it for another edition of Solving for B. If you enjoyed the episode, check out brandextract.com for more content on all things branding and marketing. Be sure to also follow us on our social channels like Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in to Solving for Beating.